Romans chapter 8 this morning as we pick up where we left off last Lord's Day. We are right in the section of Paul's letter to the Romans in which he is dealing with the sanctification. He has dealt extensively with how we are accepted by God through of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. And then he has transitioned now to deal with the Christian life, how it is that through our union with Christ, we've not only been delivered from the guilt of sin, we've been delivered from the power of sin, and we can now live in newness of life. That was back in chapter 6. We saw last Lord's Day in chapter 7 that while that is true... There is that irreconcilable war going on within us, the flesh against the spirit. There is indwelling sin. Though though we do not live in sin, sin still lives in us. And we find this this battle, this frustrating battle in the, the Christian experience. And you'll note that the Apostle Paul, as he autobiographically explains that battle in the life of the Christian, finally cries out in verse 24, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And he gives that great statement, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He, he knew that there is a day coming when the believer will be fully set free from sin because of the victory that Christ has already gained. He was looking in anticipation to that day and yet acknowledging the reality. With my mind, I serve the law of God. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. And so this morning we're coming to the next section of Paul's letter, and we're looking at Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. Paul now pens these great words, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God endures forever. Well, you probably know that Martin Luther, the great German reformer, was known in part for his hypothetical conversations with Satan. Uh, Luther would oftentimes sense what he thought was the presence of the evil one, given a a special assignment to him to try to destroy him. And one of the things that Luther was acutely aware of, whether or not Satan was really there in those rooms in Coburg, in the castle, as he he hid out from, from the Roman Catholic Church, as the German princes hid him, or whether it was in the other hiding places. One of the things that, that Luther was acutely aware of was that Satan loves to dredge up the sins of believers to accuse them and to bring them into a sense of condemnation. That is, 
arguably the greatest strategy of the evil one, to take those sins that we know we have committed, as egregious as some of those are, as worthy of judgment of all of those are, and to bring them before our minds constantly accusing us so that we will live in a sense of fear and condemnation and a sense of the fear of judgment. And Luther, on numerous occasions in these hypothetical dialogues with the devil and in his preparations for them, would write and explain to his students how it is that we are to approach the evil one when we sense that he is dredging up our sins to accuse us and to bring us into that that, that state of a sense of condemnation. Um, on one occasion, Luther wrote this. He said, if the devil approaches us and says, look, see how great your sin is. See, too, how bitter, how terrible is the death you must suffer. We can answer, devil, don't you know the power of my Lord Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection? In him there is eternal righteousness and eternal life. His resurrection from the dead is mightier than my sin, death, and hell. This is all so very true that the devil cannot deny it. Isn't that a marvelous thought? This is also very true that the devil cannot deny it. Now, Luther wasn't coming up with these things on his own. Luther knew the scriptures well, and Martin Luther knew Romans well. It was Romans that he had been lecturing through when the Reformation broke out in Germany. And no doubt Luther had as one of those strongholds Romans 8.1, one of the great verses in church history. There is therefore... Now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Luther understood that what he said that we ought to say to the evil one when he is attacking us was bound up in the very teaching of Romans 8.1. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a glorious word. Now, it has rightly been said that Romans chapter 8 is the greatest chapter in the greatest book in the Bible. And so it's fitting that the greatest chapter in the greatest book in the Bible leads off with the greatest statement of comfort and assurance for believers. There are so many themes in Romans 8. One of the elders and I were talking this week, and he said, I hope, I hope you slow down when we get into Romans 8, because there's a lot in there. There's a lot of amazing teaching in Romans 8, and there's a lot of ways that theologians have tried to capture the essence of Romans 8. One of those things is that it is the great chapter about the work of the Holy Spirit. He is mentioned 26 times. I'm sorry, he is mentioned nine times in these 26 verses. And, and yet, I don't think that this chapter is just focusing on the work of the Spirit, though that is prevalent. This chapter, it has been rightly argued... Is, is, is bound up with the issue of the believer's assurance of salvation. How can I know that I belong to Christ? How do I know that despite the fact that I have this battle and there's still sin in my life, though, though Jesus has atoned for my sins, though he has paid for the guilt of it, though he has broken the power of it, Notice the last verse of chapter 7. Paul says, So I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with the flesh I serve the law of sin. And, and if, I, if I recognize that as a believer there's still sin in my life, 
and there always will be in this life, how can I have assurance that I belong to Christ? You know, I don't have to know anything about you to know that if you're a true believer, whenever you sin against the Lord, it, it, it scars your conscience in such a way that, that you are grieved over your sin and oftentimes feel condemned by it. Unbelievers don't feel that. Um, true believers oftentimes struggle with assurance of salvation because of the presence of indwelling sin. And so it's fitting that no sooner has Paul made this great statement about the reality of indwelling sin in the life of a believer that he follows it up with that great declaration, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now I want us to consider four things as we look at these four verses this morning. First, I want us to consider the declaration, no condemnation. And then I want us to consider the realization of that declaration then the foundation of that declaration, and then the formation of that declaration. The declaration, the realization, the foundation, and the formation. Well, notice there, he makes that unqualified at this point, introductory, unqualified declaration. There is, therefore, now no condemnation. Now, as I have already noted, Paul is linking this to what has just gone before. That's why he says, therefore, therefore, Therefore what? Therefore, even though there is this irreconcilable war going on, even though I feel the presence of sin in my life on a daily basis, even though I'm grieved by it, even though I am seeking to fight against it, sometimes failing, sometimes victorious, despite that reality, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, I noted already that this chapter is really meant to give the believer assurance of salvation, both in light of indwelling sin, in light of what you still are, as well as in light of the suffering that you may endure in this life at the hands of others. It's very interesting. This chapter is bookended. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. It opens with no condemnation. It closes with no separation. What can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? I am convinced that neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor any other created thing will ever be able to separate us from Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no condemnation. There is no separation. And that is a great comfort to believers. Because as we battle with sin, as we experience suffering, we need this word to come and press deep into our minds and hearts to settle us, to strengthen us, and to lead us forward despite those realities working on us and the evil one working on us through those things, both from within and from without. Isn't that marvelous? No condemnation despite the sin that still dwells within, no separation despite the affliction and the suffering that comes from without. Now, for us to understand the greatness of this declaration, we have to understand what Paul is actually saying. And I mentioned several weeks ago that you could essentially cut Romans 6.1 
to 725 out of the Bible and connect Romans 8.1 to the end of Romans 5. Remember, back there he told us that we were in Adam, but now we're in Christ. And because we're in Christ, where Adam brought death and sin and judgment and condemnation, Christ has brought in forgiveness and life and justification. And very interesting, if you want to see this connection, you go back and you look at Romans 5.16, where in that context of Adam and Christ and all men in either Adam or in Christ, the Apostle Paul says this, the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Listen to that, the judgment following one trespass, Adam's, brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses, that's ours, brought justification. Now that means that the opposite of condemnation is justification. The opposite of justification is condemnation. You see what Paul's doing there. He's juxtaposing our acceptance with God because of the righteousness of Christ with the condemnation we deserve by nature. John Murray, that great theologian from Westminster Seminary, said this, condemnation is the opposite of justification. Justification implies the absence of condemnation. There is no condemnation for those in Christ. Murray says... He says this, he says, since the theme of Romans is the complete and irreversible justification of the ungodly, the complete and irreversible justification of the ungodly, it carries with it the annulment of all condemnation. So essentially, if God would take us when we were ungodly, And he would justify us through the bloodshed and the sinless life of Jesus. And he would accept us as righteous in his sight because of the righteousness of Jesus imputed to us. When we were ungodly, he has removed all prospect of condemnation from the believer. Now, I don't know what is a greater motivation to Christian living than that. And let me say this morning, when that is not deeply settled in your mind and heart, you will not live a fruitful Christian life. You will try to live the Christian life in legality. You will try to pull yourself through legally as if you're doing what's pleasing to God while having a sense that God's going to condemn you. But when that sinks in and we realize there's no condemnation, Because God has already accepted me in Christ freely by his grace when I was ungodly. Because I am now united to him. And there is no condemnation. We want to live the Christian life for God fully and with joy. That's that's amazing. That's the secret. Um, I don't know many of you well. I know some of you well. But I know that you need to hear this desperately because I know that so often Christians go in every direction around this, bypassing it, instead of receiving the comfort of it. Listen to this. Sinclair Ferguson reflecting on the greatness of this verse. 
says, there isn't a single sin in my life that can possibly condemn me because now I am in Christ Jesus. That's important because Satan has a way of reminding us of our sin and bringing them to the surface. This is what Luther felt. It's actually what the greatest saints in church history have felt. John Newton, in one of his great hymns, put it this way. He said to the Lord, Be thou my shield and hiding place, that sheltered near thy side, I may my fierce accuser face and tell him thou hast died. You see, when we forget that there is no condemnation for those in Christ, we are forgetting what Christ has already accomplished. We are taking our eyes off the cross. We are taking them off of the Lord Jesus, and we're putting them on our performance. And that is inevitable. That is inevitable that it will ultimately fail you and leave you feeling condemned. And so the apostle wants this to wash over you this morning. If you are in Christ by faith, if you are united to him by faith, if you're trusting in him, if you're resting in his finished work, Paul says, and the Holy Spirit says this morning, there is therefore now no condemnation. Now here's what's amazing. God has already brought the end time verdict into being in time and space. I want you to see this. Back in chapter 7, verse 24, Paul said, wretched man, that I am, not that I was, that I am. Wretched man that I am, I have this war going on, I do things I don't want to do, I don't do things I want to do, I, I, I wrestle internally with these things. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And he's really crying out for the bodily resurrection here. And he says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Christ. And he's looking forward. And he realizes there is, there is an eschatological, an end-time reality, a, a guarantee of a victory in Christ in the bodily resurrection of believers on the last day. But then he turns around and he says, but now there is no condemnation. Isn't that awesome? Even though we haven't attained to the resurrection yet, even though we're still in these bodies of death, even though we cry out with Paul, if we're true Christians, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? And even though we hope in the victory we have in Christ, Paul says, there is now, therefore, no condemnation. We embrace it. It's a present reality. Isn't that all? This is not the stuff of false assurance. This is what God has done. This is what Christ has done. This is the realest and truest thing. If you don't feel this, it doesn't make it any less true. Our justification is a legal reality before God. The second you believed in Christ, you were justified. The second you believed, there was no condemnation. Because Christ took the condemnation on himself. And Christ has atoned for all your sins so that there's not one sin that can condemn you on judgment day. Now, that's marvelous, because that means we can take this verse, and we can not just look at our own sins, we can look at the sins of those saints in the Old Testament. We can see Noah passed out drunk in his tent, and we can hear God saying to Noah, no condemnation. We can see David taking another man's wife and premeditating the, the, the murder of her husband, one of his mighty men, and we can hear God saying to David, no condemnation. 
We can look at all the sins of all the saints through all time, and we can hear God saying to them, there is no condemnation for those in Christ. Now, that's the declaration. And then there's the realization. Um, this is an ever-present word to us. It's, it's supposed to work on our minds and hearts on a daily basis. Um, our Christian life is so much like a roller coaster. So many twists and turns. Um, we have good days and we have bad days. A lot of ups and downs. Times when we are backslidden, times when we are very close to the Savior. Um, the Christian life is not just this ever-increasing better and better and better. It's not. Anyone that tells you that, run as far as you can from them, because they know nothing of their own hearts. It is, it is a roller coaster. And in the midst of that, this word constantly comes to bear. There is now no condemnation if you're in Christ. Now, there's a qualifier. If you're in Christ, you have to be united to him. You have to be savingly united to the Savior. And that happens the second we believe in him. In fact, union with Christ goes back to eternity. Remember that Paul, at the beginning of Ephesians 1, said that God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And, and then in time and space, we were united to him. He represented us. Everything that he did, he did as the representative of those chosen in him before the foundation of the world. But then when we finally came in our experience to believe in him, to trust in him, to repent and believe the gospel, we were savingly united to him. We became like a branch in the vine. And, and Paul says, if you have been united to Jesus Christ, there is now, in every second of every moment of your Christian experience in the here and now, even as you're wrestling with sin and, and feeling that warfare, there is no condemnation. Um, you know, hypocrites try to convince themselves there's no condemnation, and yet they know nothing of the battle with sin. They know nothing of what it means to be united to the Savior. They know nothing of love to Christ. They know nothing of love to God's word. They know nothing of a desire to walk uprightly. And yet believers who have those things oftentimes don't know the truth that there is now no condemnation for those in Christ. Um, isn't that interesting? Hi hypocrites love to convince themselves there is. When there's not, believers love to convince themselves there's not when there is. And so we are to embrace this in our Christian experience as the realization of how this declaration works. Listen to this. Spurgeon put it this way. He said, believers are in a state of conflict, but not in a state of condemnation. Believers are in a state of conflict, but not in a state of condemnation. At the very time when their conflict is hottest, the believer is still justified. Isn't that awesome? At the very time when our conflict with sin and Satan and the world is hottest, 
our justification is the same as it's ever been. You see, this is, this is an anchor for the soul. This is an anchor for assurance. This is meant to keep you grounded and moving forward in the conflict. That's the realization of what this verse does. It, it moves us into the conflict knowing there's no condemnation. Now, I want us to consider the foundation of this. How is it that there's no condemnation? How is it that it's realized in the believer's life? Well, notice that, that Paul gives us now the foundation of this declaration. He says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, Paul has been debating the subject of what place the law of God, the moral law, has in the life of a believer. And he has told us that we died to the law to be married to Christ. He has told us that we are no longer under the law so that we might bear fruit to God. He has told us that the law cannot condemn us. He has told us that our relationship to the law is totally different than before we were converted. And he has told us that the law cannot sanctify us. It has no power to sanctify us, but that we need union with Christ, to whom we're married, who raises us to newness of life and makes us bear fruit to God. And now he plays off of that word law, talking about the Mosaic law, and he uses it in a different way. Notice this. He says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, Paul's use of the word law here is that of a principle, the principle, how things in reality, the principle of the spirit of life in Christ has set us free. Now, this is really where Paul is introducing the Holy Spirit to us. And he's saying that believers who are united to Christ have been given the spirit of Christ. They have the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. They've been raised to newness of life by the Holy Spirit. They've been regenerated by the spirit. They've been born of the spirit. They've been filled with the spirit. And now the spirit of life in Christ has set us free from the law, the principle of sin and death. Because before we had the Holy Spirit, all we did was sin, and that sin brought condemnation on us through the ministry of the moral law to condemn us to eternal death. But now, Paul says, in Christ, we've been given the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of life, and he has delivered us from that condemnation that the law pronounces on us because of our sin resulting in eternal death. And then he goes on to explain more of this foundation of how there's no condemnation. Notice verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Now notice that for us to be removed from out under the condemnation of God, God had to do something. There was nothing you could do. There were no steps you could take. 
There was no effort you could employ. There were no activities you could involve yourself in. There were no works you could contribute. There was nothing we could do. In fact, further than that, there was nothing the law of God could do. That law that demanded your obedience, that law that said cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things written in the book of the law to do them. That law only brought condemnation. It could not deliver you. No amount of desire in keeping it, no effort to keep it, no contribution on your part to trying to fulfill its demands could ever deliver you from the condemnation that it pronounced on you because of your sin. And so God did something. And this is marvelous. The God against whom we sinned, who pronounces that condemnation, who gave that law, of whom that law is a reflection of his holy character. That God did something to deliver you from the condemnation you deserve before his judgment seat in order to deliver you and to do what the law could not do. You see what Paul's doing. He's still dispelling any notion that you can be justified or sanctified by the law. He is saying, if you are trying to gain acceptance by God by law-keeping, the law could not do it. If you are trying to find deliverance over indwelling sin in your life, the law does not have power to do it. But God did something that the law could not do in that it was weak through our flesh. The law could not do it because of the weakness of our sin. The law could not do it, not because of any blemish in the law, but because it's an instrument that was never intended to do that for you. Um, I, I love golf. I'm terrible at it. Some of you will attest to that in here. Really terrible at it. Um, but if you, if you gave me a new driver, and I do welcome new drivers as gifts, if you gave me... I'm like, no, 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 come on. If, if, if you gave me a new driver, and I took it home, and my wife said, honey, we really need to hang these paintings. And I said, you know what? Somebody just gave me a new driver. And I went over, and I tried to hammer a 16-penny nail into the wall with a, with a driver. I'm going to ruin that driver real quick, because that's not what it was intended to do. The law was never intended to justify or sanctify you. It has no power to do that, and it was never God's intention. It is merely a means of showing us our sinfulness and showing us what is pleasing to God. That's it. And so notice what Paul says. God did what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. How is it that I can stand here and from God's word tell you this morning there is no condemnation for you right now if you're in Christ? It's because God did what the law couldn't do because he sent the eternal son to take on flesh and blood, to be incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary, to live a sinless life all the way into adult manhood, to be nailed to the tree because of your unrighteousness and my unrighteousness. And when all of our sins were imputed to him and he was nailed to the tree, God condemned your sin in the flesh of Jesus. 
And, and he didn't just atone for the guilt of your sin. He did that. He didn't just break the power of sin. He did that. But he condemned sin in the flesh so that sin has no more condemning power over you and the law cannot take your sin and condemn you because God has condemned your sin in the body of Jesus on the tree. So much so, so much so, that Octavius Winslow put it this way, that which is itself condemned cannot condemn. That which is itself condemned cannot condemn. And therefore, if your sins are condemned in the death of Jesus on the cross, they can no longer condemn you. Now, if you have a gospel smaller than this, you do not have a gospel. If you sit under preaching that doesn't give you this, find another church. There is something so powerful about the death of Jesus on the cross that your guilty conscience can say there is no condemnation for me because Christ has condemned my sin in his flesh on the tree. Every single sin that you have ever committed or ever will commit. And I guarantee you, you and I do not hear this enough, and I guarantee you that we are far too slow to believe this. Because if we did believe this, we would all be living joyful, content, loving, peaceful, joyful lives. And when we're not, it's because we've forgotten this. And it's very interesting, an old uh, theologian named um, Hugh Martin once reflecting on the substitutionary nature of Christ for us and, and what it meant that our sins were imputed to him and what it means that his work is credited to us. He, he noted that when our sins were imputed to Christ, they had an impact on him. They affected him, so much so that Jesus could say, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. That the sorrow of the guilt of our sin that we feel was, was in a sense transferred to Jesus and, and his soul was weighed down even unto death in the garden. He sweat great drops of blood because of the effect that the imputation of your sin and my sin had on him. But Martin said that the converse is true too. That what he has accomplished on the cross has such an impact on us that it's not a legal fiction. It actually creates in us joy and peace because we get the end result of what was true of him. So that Paul can say... He condemned sin in the flesh. Listen to this. Octavius Winslow says, Jesus bore the condemnation and punishment of sin and forever secured our pardon. He actually so condemned sin in his own body that it lost the power of condemning his church so that neither sin nor the consequence of sin can ever lay the believer under condemnation. Neither sin nor the consequences of sin, though they are grave, can ever lay the believer under condemnation. 
Winslow says, while sin condemned Jesus as the surety, Jesus condemned sin as the judge. Now, here's the glorious thought. If you're here thinking, oh, I, I want that to be true in my experience. I want to feel that to be true. Let me tell you this this morning. Whether you feel the only person in the universe that can condemn you is God. And Jesus is God. He is the eternal son. God sent his own son who is our sins on the tree to take we're under because of the curse of the law because we have not obeyed the law. And he became a curse for us. The God who alone could condemn us became a curse for us. The God who will stand and judge the wicked on judgment day took in his body the sin that ought to condemn us so that there is no condemnation. Um, I love the way Michael Card envisions this when, excuse me, he's speaking of the judgment day and the believer there before the throne of God, and he said, to look into my judge's face and see my Savior there. To look into the judge's face and see the Savior there. You see, that's our hope. The only one that condemned us came in the flesh, yet without sin, and condemns sin in his own flesh on the tree, so that that pronouncement, there is no condemnation, might be pronounced over you as the truest and realest thing. It is the truest and the realest thing if you're in Christ Jesus. Now let me say that this this morning. There's a formation that this does to us as we close. We've heard the declaration... We've touched on the realization. We've considered the foundation. Now there is a formation. Paul has said numerous times that God's grace doesn't lead us to live a life of sin. It leads us to live a life of renewed desire to do what is pleasing to God. And yet, we still have that battle within us, Romans 7. And yet God is giving us ever new supplies of grace in Christ so that we will be fruitful in every good word and work. Notice the formation. Notice this verse. In verse 4 he says, he says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, This means that when I hear the declaration, there's no condemnation. That should fuel my desire to walk in the Spirit and do those things that are pleasing to God. Not give me license to sin my head off. It should should fuel me to do what is pleasing to God. Now let me say this this morning. There's, There's no small debate in church history. There's no small debate over what Paul means by the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in us. Um, There are some who think this is talking about the the work of God in 
sanctification. There are, there are numerous theologians that think he's talking about God leading us in paths of righteousness and us fulfilling the evangelical conditions of the law. But I, I think John Calvin is right here. I think he's still reflecting on the righteous requirement, and that is the legal demands of the law for perfect personal and perpetual obedience. And that what he's saying is Christ has fulfilled that for us and is now at work in us because he has fulfilled that for us, because he has accepted us, because we are the recipients of his righteousness, because he has fulfilled that law and has imputed it to us and has given us his Holy Spirit to indwell us, that at the same time as sin still indwells me, Christ indwells me by his Spirit. And because Christ indwells me by his Spirit, Paul says that we are those who do not live as our practices according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We keep in step with the Spirit. We want to be sensitive to the conviction of the Spirit, to the Spirit leading us into paths of righteousness, to Him wanting to conform us more and more to the image of Christ. Now, this is glorious. This means that in some way, your justification ought to have a bearing on the fueling of your sanctification. Because when I remember that God did what the law couldn't do in condemning my sin in the body of Jesus, so that there is no condemnation for me in Christ, I want nothing more than to live in the Spirit and not according to the flesh. And the Lord wants you to understand these things this morning. Let me say this as we close. It doesn't matter how little or how much progress you think you've made in your Christian life. There is no condemnation for those in Christ. Let me say that again. It does not matter how little or how much progress you think you've made in your Christian life. You have not made progress according to God's requirement of the law as he demands, in any way whatsoever. And you never will in this life, but there is still no condemnation. And let me say this, God wants that to wash over you in such a way that you say, I want to live the rest of my time here, not living according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I want to walk in newness of life for which Christ has raised me up. I want to be who Christ has already made me. I want, to, I want to live in such a way that reflects that I believe there's no condemnation, that Christ has already condemned my sin in the flesh, that I'm united to him, that I am forever united to him. Y'all, I almost want to go back and preach this all over again. I know you don't want me to. Because I really believe that the greatest detriment to us bearing fruit in the Christian life so often is that we don't believe this. And we can say we believe it, and we can quote that verse from chapter 8, verse 1, but inside, we often allow the attacks of Satan to leave us feeling condemned over our sins and failures. And so we got to go back to the foot of the cross 
And we got to see all that Jesus accomplished for us. And we have to hear the one who cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we have to say, he was forsaken that I may not be. He was condemned that I may not be. He condemned my sin in the flesh so that I will not be condemned on judgment day because of it. Now, if you're not in Christ, none of this is true for you. If you've never trusted in the Lord Jesus as the only savior of sinners, none of this is true for you. There's only condemnation. And that condemnation will be realized in eternal judgment forever. Forever. And it will be unending. And it will be horrible. And yet God did what the law could not do in condemning sin in the flesh so that sinners like us who are under the condemnation of God may embrace and receive that declaration, there is no condemnation, because we are in Christ. And so I would urge you, if you've never trusted in him, that you would flee to him, because you only get to hear this so many times in life before it's too late. And if you're in Christ, I would urge you to hold fast to these things, even and especially when you're feeling condemned over your sin. They are meant to be a continual comfort to those who are united to the Lord Jesus. And let me say this again this morning. There is nothing in here that Paul is calling you to do. He's telling you what God has done. So that you would understand this was done outside of you. So that he might work within you. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would cause these precious, precious truths to wash over our minds and hearts where we have failed to walk according to the Spirit. We pray that you would forgive us for the times that we have sought to please our flesh. We pray that you would forgive us. And yet, our God, we pray that you would make us to know that you have already condemned our sin in the body of Jesus And that there is now no condemnation for us who are in him. Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you for the efficacy of your death on the cross. We thank you for what you accomplished for us. We pray that you would be at work in us. We pray that you would make us a people who live no longer for the flesh, but those that walk in the spirit. And so would you give us a greater measure of your spirit by faith? And would you give us the joy and peace that come from knowing that we are no longer under your condemnation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.